from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you live from the Wharton School. Huntsman Hall. Sirius XM Business Radio Studios, a few years old now. Studios that look onto Penn's famed Locust Walk on a brisk but beautiful January morning here in Philadelphia. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with the full house. All my buddies, all my collaborators, the four of us who created this show four years ago, coming up on four years anyway, about a month away from four years. Eric Bradlow, Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen, Shane making an appearance, no doubt still celebrating the New England Patriots' 43rd consecutive AFC championship. It never gets old. I bet it doesn't. That's not the attitude you were taking in the in the elevator the other day. You were like, hey, it's cool. I missed the game. I was in the play. Well, I, yeah, I did. Because it happens a, every well, year. Well, I mean, it never gets old that my team is in the Super Bowl. I, fa- in fact, did miss you know, most you know, of the game. You know, I, was in, you, I was in the know, air. It does get old for the rest of us, Shane. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I'm picking up on that. That not everybody's <laughs> delighted by the Patriots making. No, not know. so much. If you're listening and you want to join this conversation, you want to tell us how delighted you are or are not about the Pats or the Eagles. We can talk Eagles. I suspect we're going to talk Eagles. You can jump in here. We're going to talk for the next two hours, sports analytics. You can join the conversation, 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. 1-844-942-7866. Give us a call. Matt Dats waiting, standing by for your phone call. You can also drop Matt an email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. We sometimes pick those up live if that's your preferred mode of communication. But also, if you're listening when we're replayed, one of the four or five times over the course of the week we're replayed, drop us a note between shows and we'll we'll get back to you. You can follow us on Twitter these days. The handle is at WMoneyBall. We're up there through the week and we follow all our guests. It's a great way to stay on top of the world of sports analytics. We have a regular show, full show. We have guests at the bottom of this half hour, bottom of this hour, top of the next hour, our usual spots. We've got open lines between now and then. We've got the full house here. We have football season coming to a conclusion. And the local boys in the fight, which will be fun. I'm curious, fellas. It's not just football. There's other things going on. I'm curious. What has caught your eye around the world of sports? Well, so what's interesting about the, the game is that there's good reason. I, first of all, I'm happy there's analytics. And let me say why, statistics and analytics. Because I'm happy, too. Yeah, but, that, there's, that, that, but there's that, a different reason, not just exists. our career, yeah, our show, yeah. all of that stuff. This is from a non-Patriot fan. This is the part that, if you didn't have analytics, would probably bother you. So a lot of people want to say, you know, you watch the Patriot game, whether it's last year's Super Bowl against the Falcons, or maybe even this year's game against the Jaguars, and you say, you know, if that, if you had to say at halftime of that game, who's the better team? Oh, it's obviously the other team. I mean, the Falcons were... But, they play, there's a reason they play four quarters, and there's a reason they play 60 minutes, and there's also a reason we have mathematical models that tell us the relative strengths of these teams. Mm-hmm. But I think the part that bothers people maybe the most, if you'd like, is the Jaguars should have won that game. The Falcons should have won that game. I don't know about that. I, don't, I mean, no, they shouldn't have won that game. They lost the game. They got 30 yards in the fourth quarter. They couldn't move the football. If they, yeah, if they had possessed the ball the way they did in the first half, long drives, eating up the clock, yeah, they would have won the game. If Matt Ryan hadn't gotten sacked and Brian had come in and kicked a field goal, yeah. But that's not actually what happened. So 
That's the part as a non-patriot fan I think infuriates you is there are periods of their last few years where you look at it and say, how are they winning? And they're not the better team. Well, no, and I mean, like, this is what breeds all the conspiracy theories. You know, I, I mean, it, it's... Oh, that and the 100 yards versus penalties versus 10. Well, but, right, uh, right. That, that and the penalty disparity. You, oh, and the... And the a pe- two that, Brutus? I mean, are you really going to <laughs> buy mean, into that? So know, what is that, it? So it's, it's not, the, the it's, penalty it's difference? It's not great. It's, Ken, not, great. Is your, is it's there not great when the refs are coming up and, and, and smiley and congratulating and patting The first patting, person patting to congratulate backs. them. It's it's that's not really great. guys. It's come on, great. I'm just saying it's, it's not, not it's great. Not, it's not it's not a trivial notion. Was there a sense that the referees were very unfair on the field, or was it just an observation that ten to one is is unusual in the chumminess? Because if you look at the data surrounding home field advantage, and one of the things that people are talking about the Eagles is, do they going to have a chance outside of the link? Right, because they they had the best record at home. They really seem to get charged up by the by the fans. The data from the analytics side is that the biggest effect that the home team has on the game is the referees. In yeah. other sports, not in football. No, maybe not in football. So, well, I, I mean, so, but, which is actually, probably no, the most no, no, relevant no, thing actually, here. No, I don't necessarily think that that's not in football. I don't know. I, 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 don't, I think it's across sports. I think it's across sports. I mean, this is something I mean, they've shown this, actual, like, effects in the NBA, but I, has there actually been, well, like, NBA has the most an effect on of actual calls. calls and stuff like so, that? So, yeah, NBA and baseball... This is scorecasting with Toby Moskowitz, who was That's at right. Chicago then, now is a Yale hedge fund manager, whatever, and John Wertheim, who's Sports Illustrated and the author of whatever, We've had on the show. A, bunch, a bunch of books. They they did a book on sports analytics and a chapter on home field advantage, and so they tried to do the sleuthing. Yeah. And, and, and I thought other, the conclusion was that, yeah, it, 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 in NBA, a little bit in NHL, not really in NFL. I, I thought that, I'll but just I choose, could be wrong Here would be that. the way, if I had to play out the conspiracy theory about the penalties in the game, sure, this yeah. is the way I would say Let's it. By the way, I didn't think, no, no. I thought, <laughs> Every year it's a different conspiracy <laughs> theory. That's the beauty of it. Yeah, well, I'll, give you, my, I'll give you my theory, which was, <laughs> I, I thought every penalty that I saw called on the Jaguars was fair. Yeah. I thought there were a bunch, and they showed it, you know, super slow-mo, holding calls on receivers that the Patriots weren't called for. So to me, I don't. Th- I think the Jaguars earned every penalty they got. I think the Patriots earned a few penalties they didn't get. Mm-hmm. And that's the way I saw it. Yeah. But, I, but every penalty that was... Uh, there was a couple of yeah, well, pass I mean, like interference the, calls. This, this they to, pass interfered. Those were penalties. Well, this, 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 this 10 to 1... Isn't your like penalty difference, which is actually what was it like? It was actually eighty-eight to ninety-eight 10, yards, right? ninety-eight yards okay. to ten. I mean, like two, like like that ninety-eight yards. About ha- like three quarters of that was like two pass interference, and those were pass interference, and they were. I mean, the if guy you look grabbed at them, him from behind. That was and a- sure, I guess. I mean. It, if you want to kind of take the argument that there's somehow the denominator was the thing that favored the Pats, that like you know somehow it was it was missed penalties on the Pats, then you have to go back and do that to both sides of you know both teams. It could just, I mean, how about Tom Brady, forty year old Tom Brady threw for 140 yeah. yards and two touchdowns in the fourth quarter. Come on, yeah, well that's just they what won he does. the game. Yeah. They won the game. And I, look, I, 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 let me say, I hear that it was mostly cheating. Analytics. That's what I hear. <laughs> analytics. I hear on the helped. internet. Sometime, maybe it's going to be in the Super Bowl, and maybe it's going to be Doug Peterson, by the way, the guy who they claim, I, I posted it on at W Moneyball, who uses analytics, they're saying a lot, maybe somebody's actually going to go for it on a fourth and one in the middle of the fourth quarter with at the 50-yard line and decide, you know what, I know what's going to happen if I don't get this, and I punt it back, and the Patriots have five minutes left on the clock. The Jaguars had an opportunity. There were six minutes left on the clock, fourth and one from the 50-yard line, and they punted the ball. I don't know why teams keep doing that. Why do you keep doing it? Patriots did it twice. 
in the fourth quarter, fourth and two, fourth and four, 47 yard line, they punted. Well, Twice. F- fourth and fours, maybe we could debate a little you, bit different. If you look at if in midfield, fourth and four, I mean, this is, listen, it's not that the time isn't part of the, the chart, but if you look at the, the, the expected points, fourth and four, you go for in midfield. But but Odd, you're asking too much of the you're asking too much of the industry. So the, the fourth, but no, the Romer's <laughs> paper, the, the the famous paper, pretty much the first serious football analytics paper, which early two thousands, right. on fourth down conversions, says that you should go for it in basically implausible, politically implausible situations. You know, like fourth and one on your own fifteen or whatever. I mean, it's just the the, the math says that. The, the reality is so far from that that we want to praise progress towards Romer, even if it's far from going all the way to Romer. That's essentially what's going on. So Peterson, for example, and Belichick for years have been more aggressive, and I think the emphasis should be on look rest of league. This is the way you play football. Not that they're still missing. I'm just hoping. I, I'm that just would hoping be my choice. If of, in of the emphasis. Super Bowl, if there's an opportunity for the Eagles to get aggressive or to do the analytically statistically right play. Let's call it fourth and one, fourth and two, 50-yard line, 50 middle yard of the line fourth plays, quarter. Right. They decide to go for it. And you know what? If they don't make it, they don't make it. But you know what's going to happen under the other scenario. You, I mean, with high <laughs> probability, you're going to kick it off. Brady's going to drive 90 yards down the field, and you're going to lose. So just play to win the game. Well, this is a big theme from the weekend because Jacksonville went conservative yes. when they got up big. Yeah. Right. And, and the Eagles didn't. The Eagles kept playing, playing their normal game, which you see this all the time, right? It's a major theme in football. You see coaches kind of turtle well, when they get You know what's interesting? Up. I didn't realize which... Do you guys know? I mean, I already told no, you one no. of them. The Eagles were the second most team this year, by the way, that went for it on fourth down and short yardage. Yeah. Do you know who the number one team was, interestingly? The Cleveland Browns. Now, we understand the Cleveland... Remember, Cleveland's had issues... They probably were out on fourth down a lot. <laughs> but they went for it more than... I'm just saying, yeah. it was Cleveland and the Eagles right, went for right. it on fourth well, these down. these are two of the most analytics forward well, that's, teams. That's I'm, my I'm point. Gonna, I'm going to only push back on this whole turtling... Con- I mean, I agree that the Jaguars went overly conservative and, and that in part cost them the game. But again, like, Go back to the Super Bowl last year. We were actually accusing Atlanta of not turtling enough, that, that they should have run the ball more. They should have gone more conservative with their play calling in the second half when they had that big lead. They actually, three is... they actually stayed aggressive, and that's what hurt them. So, I mean... That's interesting. It's a fair point. I don't remember the details of that. Well, I, it, well, it's a much I, bigger I, I lead. Speak specific, I, mean, I speak specifically it. of that one drive that they had where they were actually in field goal range, and all they had to do was run it three times and stay in field goal range, and they would have had an instrumental lead. Instead, they, you know, yeah, so they're, they're, called they're, passing plays, got sacked, and, and it requires. I, 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 I've memorized that game, so I, I. So it requires some nuance. So it's not that universally yeah. you're supposed to stay right. Right. pedal to the metal if you're yeah. ahead. That's not the case. But we know we've seen. Coaches make this mistake, you know, for whatever decades. It raises. I, I just think we've seen New England come back on teams who have turtled and not turtled. I'm not sure it actually helps. Now, now you've got that glimmer in your eye yeah. again, Shane. So I, I wish we had a measure, a clean, concise measure of aggressiveness. Mm-hmm. And we could call it for a team or for a coach over time or whatever. So we could just see right away, you know, according to the index, this right. is how they played that game, or this is where they stand across the season, or this is a coach's career, or this is how a coach has evolved. You can certainly look at what you cer- – I don't think this necessarily would get to aggressiveness. You could certainly look for any play called, what did the analytics say to do, what was – Done. I mean, here's the problem: is the outcome of the play has a randomness to it. So you can't just say what play was called. Let's say even saying going for it on fourth and four from the fifty yard line. 
Let's say the analytics say to do it. Here's the expected number of points you would gain. But it's also you the chose variance. A di- I know. I know. So I understand but, that. But, but you, could, you could, for every play or every decision to punt, or you could compute in some the points lost by choosing this option over a different option. Yeah. It's, it's not aggressiveness. It's, I'm not it, well, saying it's, that. Except it's, it's so hard to actually do, I mean, do that retrospective. It's, it's hard to judge the intent of a play in terms That's of the aggressiveness. You know, it, it, it's... Yeah, like something like a draw play where you just hand it off on second and twenty. I mean, yeah, we can judge that that was not a very aggressive play. But for for most plays where the the quarterback has options, and you know, I mean, he could, we we'd have to actually talk to the coaching staff and somehow you know oh, but you, talk about the play that was designed Shane, versus no. Now you sound executed. like a now you sound like a nineteen seventies coach or a guy who's been coaching for thirty years and is anti analytics and says you can't grade my offensive linemen because you don't know what they're intended to do and turns out if you follow, if you watch an offensive lineman for a few hundred plays over the course of a season you can do a pretty good job oh no that, yes that's right I, I guess I'm more pushing back on the fact that this is somehow an, it, it's easy to just sort of say oh that was an aggressive play versus not I mean I, I agree that it can be done it just has to be couldn't you really, do the, let me just ask you couldn't you do it the, has to be a real deep dive by people well, who was, are actually couldn't you do the following trained to do, I wouldn't be able to do this let's just take your example of second and 20 so let's imagine I'm making a number up of course let's imagine there's 50 different plays calls you could make at second and 20, okay? And model-based or by empiricism, you know the probability distribution of outcomes for each of those calls. Outcomes are what they called. Well, it could be both. Go ahead. I, I interrupted you. Go ahead. Yeah. What I was just saying is, let's imagine there's 50 options. You know the probability distribution of outcomes for each of those 50 options that you have, whether it's based on a model or it's based on, you know, if a 17 yard play is called. You know, we look at all last games, etc. You could look at the probability distribution of what's the probability that the play is successful, and then you could look at the expected score difference, weighted by those probabilities. And why couldn't you do that? Why you could you? You couldn't do it with fifty, but you could do it no, with 10, five. five I, ten. So we're we're already subsetting by like the yardage, the down. No, that's Are too we much. subsetting by the defensive alignment that they happen to see? It's an important question. Well, you could have an infinite. You know, I mean, there's just so yeah, game. exactly. I mean, it, I, I guess what I'm arguing is it's you know the, the the play calling and the way the play goes is is I, yes, you can break it down analytically. It is just super difficult, I think, well, the, and, the, and the, very the, contextual. The, yeah, defense is one of the most important contexts because we've talked on the show this in recent weeks about defenses taking away. They choose. You know, who was it that the Saints were playing where they basically forced them to pass by loading the box? Yeah. So they weren't going to run against that thing. So. Passing wasn't really the aggressive option there. It was the kind of obvious conventional choice if people are stacking the box. Right. Right? So you're right. that it would, You would need – I mean, that might be the only other situational variable that you need is how many guys are in the box, yeah. essentially. That might get you there. Eric, I was going to suggest a simpler analysis, which is rather than the outcomes, just what do people do? So in this situation, I mean, just consider run pass or consider short pass, long pass. And with the relatively coarse binning, you could ask, you could show this is the distribution of choices made over the years in yep. this situation. And you could probably code those coarse bins for relatively more aggressive, relatively less aggressive. Mm-hmm. And then you could say, where where is this call? Which bin is this in? Is it the thing that most people do? Or is it more aggressive than what most people do? Is it less aggressive than what so most people do? So the only, I, I like the analysis. Certainly, Adi was just suggesting you can't do it with 50. Maybe you could do it with a coarser number. To me, it'd be what label would you put on aggressive, not aggressive, if you're doing the thing everyone else does. It might be atypical, doesn't mean it's aggressive, but I like the idea of it. But I'm saying, you could, what, could you put? Could you put? I think I think with a little bit of thought and and not that much coding, you could put 
play choices on a continuum from less to con- from conservative to aggressive. The only thing I'd like to is back to Adi's point about variance. So what I'd like to know is it's not so much does this increase the expected win percentage, which would be great, but it would be no, well, now it's, I mean, aggressiveness to me also has a variance component to Absolutely. it. And I'm not exactly clear how, well, I mean, I, you could simulate outcomes and well, see that, which one has. That's really what you want to be measuring. Right. You're, if you're measuring aggressiveness, you're measuring risk. That's measured Interesting. By, well, that's by a di- more yeah. Forget forget the qualitative coding of the bins. You can ask which are the higher variance bins, right? Mm-hmm. And do they move into those bins or they move away from those bins? Well, that was what my. And when you've got the lead, are you supposed to be more aggressive or less aggressive? I forget. Depends now. on how much lead, Shane. Right. <laughs> and when and, and when in the game. What are you, black no. and white person? Did you not here? play football in college? No, no. I, <laughs> is no. one answer? Is I that just, what you're I, looking for? One answer? Are you an undergraduate? Come on, man. I just <laughs> think we 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 we've we've. We've basically, you know, really got after teams after the fact, a- after Patriots comebacks for both being too aggressive and not too aggressive. I, I don't are think there's mistakes, a, a... Are both mistakes possible, Shane? Oh, yeah. No, they are certainly possible. Are we supposed to it's throw just up that, our I mean, hands like and say, oh, we it, don't know. It, it, it just, could be either one, so it, we don't it, know. It, it could be either one. Just that when, you, when you're getting after people for both sides, I mean, it, it sends kind of a mixed message to those future coaches. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. They're hard. Right? They can't take a mixed message. Well, be, right. Yeah. So so the solution is just don't play You're well against the Patriots. You're just being contrarian, Shane. You're just being contrarian. You're supposed to be in a happy mood this week. I am in a happy mood. I am in a happy mood. Can we spend a little, I just don't think we should be discussing too much anti-Patriot strategy here. <laughs> that's I think that's, that's a, what it comes down to. That's yeah. what I'm hearing. Okay, so this is Trying Wart- to confuse the situation. This is Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10. You can join the conversation. one eight four four wharton one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Full house this morning. Cade hosting. Shane. Adi, Eric, here in the studio. What else you got, fellas? Well, there were two other things interesting now that we... Let's look forward to the next game. Let's forget the past. There's another the game? Future. Yeah, yeah, there's another game. Obviously, and our, our Eagles are in I, it. I just want to point out to my, our, to my colleagues here that I watched two full football games. Oh, my God. Well, let me tell you. Start to finish. You saw... Whoa. For me, that is a record. <laughs> Those, our, our work is done here, And guys. I enjoyed it. Yeah. <laughs> the two stats I wanted to point out, one... Um, you'll find interesting. The other you'll say, I told you this wasn't true, which is my momentum story. Neil Payne wrote a really interesting article about it just yesterday, which I'll talk about in a second. The first is, uh, I wanted to know if this was statistically significant. So underdogs in the Super Bowl are 11-4 and four in the last 15 years against Beating the spread. spread? Yes, yeah, 11-4. Okay. and four. Now, 11-4 and four against spread. Now, just a simple proportion test suggests that's on the marginal end of significance. It's 7.5% significance, 11 and 4, as opposed to, you know, 50-50. So, I, A, I thought that was interesting, because mm-hmm. a lot of people are saying, you know, this is the third time now the Eagles are going to be underdogs. The other one was Neil Payne's article just yesterday on 538 had to do with, is there momentum going into the Super Bowl from a team? And here's what he did. Two interesting analyses. And his answer is no. the team that won no, no. the previous game is well, no, 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 almost no. guaranteed. He's, obviously, both of them have won the previous <laughs> game. But he did two interesting analyses. One is of the Super Bowl. Just one was very simple. One's more sophisticated. Of the team that loses the Super Bowl and the team that wins the Super Bowl, how much did they win the NFC Championship game by? That's a simple analysis. It turns out the loser of the Super Bowl has a greater margin of victory in the end game. The other one was interesting was based on ELO ratings. So the ELO ratings without the championship game predict the Super Bowl winner better than the ELO ratings with the championship game included. Can I just add now, two? that I thought two, was two an interesting thing, let me, let me analysis. Add, let me add two things to that to his article. Those are, those two things you said are true, but neither of those differences are even remotely large enough to be interesting. 
<laughs> and the other way to describe it is not statistically significant, but that's they're not even large enough to be interesting, I which is so. worse. They're, they're, you they're don't not think economically that, significant. No, effect, I mean, that's two points. It was 14 and a half to 12 and a half uh, point average I understand. difference. I, no, it's just I, not. I just said it was interesting to do. It was simple to do. I thought the one with the ELO rating, again, was a little bit more interesting that, you know, you'd be better off predicting the Super Bowl winner without having taken into account that game. Do you, can you, do you, I mean, can you believe that's true? I mean, are you really, as an empiricist, do you want to chuck that game? I don't. I'll take that result and go, yeah, it's fine. That's the way it's been for 52 years or whatever, small sample. I still want that game. Yeah, I I thought it was an interesting yeah, analysis and, 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 to it, do. It, it does bring up the point. I mean, I think a central kind of, you know, a central uh, thing issue for the Super Bowl is going to be what Nick Foles does, right? I, I and so yeah. that game, that that NFC does Championship that game, is that the Nick Foles we? And let's just ask. No, a, let's, 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 ask a let's ask a broader question. I would, I would How really would you like work to know this out? Foles I mean, so gonna by be... Elo, you're going to just you're going to it's going to move. I mean. The Eagles are, are 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 less of an underdog after the previous. Well, the betting game. line agrees to that. If you two weeks ago when we were talking about if the Patriots play anybody in the Super Bowl, they're going to be and the Eagles at that time if they had made it would have been like a seven and a half point underdog. Now it's about five. Right? I'm saying now it's yeah. about five. So we, things we, have, things have moved two or three points in Massey Peabody ratings. We moved them a point. So one on, point. on the merit of last week alone, we moved them up a point. We no, we knocked the Pats down like half a point. So for us, it went from about a seven-point line. Well, that's the Vegas to, to, line too. To five, Vegas to line is basically going from seven, seven and a half to five and yeah. a half. That yeah. is very consistent mm-hmm. with what the betting lines have done too. Right now, if you look at the at the Super Bowl games, tend to be as close as as, mo- as any game can be on on average. The the gap really? between the in terms of the the line, it tends to be. If you look at average, the, 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 the line, the line, the, the line. line. No, no, no. The so outcomes the are famously outcome. The, fa- the outcomes are different. So. so what I mean by and because Eric was talking about how what happens to the ELO rating, you do worse with the ELO rating using the championship game than if you had used it. And the issue is is that your rate they, they tend to be pretty close. Very close. So mm. when you're looking right on the border there, it, this it's part really surprised randomness. me a little bit. The Eagles obviously, as you just mentioned, are a five and a half point underdog. It's the largest spread like in the last ten Super Bowls. Mm-hmm. So that's I, I wasn't a, actually I had never thought about well, it. That, another article like, by to, Neil was this is the easiest path to the Super Bowl ever. Well that's true. <laughs> for the for the for the Patriots. So Shane, how are you feeling about the Pats at this point. Can we? Can we? I mean, I, you know, I, 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 I never get too confident, actually, because because the Patriots. I mean, you know, love them or hate them, the Super Bowl is always super close when they're in it. <laughs> always, it's always comes down to a coin flip. Have they? Right? Just, I mean, you they, would they, know they, off I, the top of your head. Have they ever won a Super Bowl by more than seven points? No. Okay, I didn't think well, so. No, no, no. Or no. lost. Won or lost. Yeah, they've definitely lost that one to Chicago in the 80s. No, 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 they definitely no. lost I, I, by more the, than I know points. in the Brady. I'm talking about the Brady era. Yeah. In the Brady era. The last seven. Have they, they lost about 100 points. That, was about yeah. the worst, three. that might but have been saying, the worst Super Bowl. Have they lost a Super Bowl or won one by more than seven points in the in, Brady era? No. Nope. Nope. So that's incredibly unusual, given the standard deviation in a football game. And given the standard deviation on Super Bowl specifically, I think it is the case that based on outcomes, Super Bowls are usually less close. But we don't make anything of it, right? I'm no, but no. Just, I mean, we don't. A typical we Super don't. Bowl super football game has a the, the score differential has a standard deviation about thirteen. That's the number that I usually use: twelve and a half to thirteen and a half. So if seven games are all decided within seven points, yeah. yes, that's an unbelievable. Yeah. To be honest with you, I'm not going to decide if they've even won one by seven. No, I think the Eagles one was actually the that was a four point victory. This is a, great, yeah, this is a good. This is a good problem for stat one. Well, no, 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 they won one by six last I like year. It. 
Right, by definite. They won by, oh, won yeah, by, yeah. They won by six last year. Yeah. I mean, yes. Te- yeah, not technically. They won by six. Yeah. It was tied, but they won by six. So uh, how do we feel about full? Shane raised this question. It was yeah, a, I mean, it I was think a it's a key game. issue. It was a phenomenal game. I think game you're going to get – you know what you're going to get with Brady. It's gonna, he's going to be – you know, Tom Brady, awesome. right? Um, but his Nick Foles, but Nick Foles looked amazing. <laughs> well, he's going to regress NFC back. Championship. I have to, you, I have to forecast. Well, maybe, or maybe, maybe somehow. But to what got, level, Adi? Yeah. That's the question. To what? What? Yeah. What's his? What's his average? I mean, he's had a he's I, had a full season of phenomenal performance, and he's had some dreadful performances. I think yeah. if you t- if, put this way, if you told Eagles fans right now, you could have a regression halfway between how he played against the Falcons and half and and how he played against the Vikings. You'd take it in a moment. Yeah, you take it in a yeah. minute. That's and by right. the way, he's still. I think in his. It's he more. Has he still like pick. Hmm? He, I, he has he thrown a pick. I don't think so. I know he didn't throw one last week. Eric, you love momentum in at the team level. Do you like it at the player level? Can I, would you be happier if I called it confidence? I think Nick Foles is more confident. I think the coaching staff is more confident in him. So what I think, let me say the following. Here's the impact I think it'll have. I think there's more variation now that the Patriots will have to prepare for. Because I think he, they now believe that uh, Doug Peterson will call a greater variety of plays. So if that helps the Eagles... Yes, I think there's an effect. Okay, we have a we have a caller from Houston, Marsha. Marsha, welcome to the show. Hey there, um, thanks for taking my call, and uh, I'm into a territory that I'm not very familiar with the football, but I'm familiar with the football. You know, the soccer. I've been coaching, you know, women's soccer in college for many years, and I had had the opportunity to work also with the Brazilian national team, and throughout the year, I have seen a phenomenon. That I don't think is well researched, and it is about the official making calls. You know when the things matters most, when things are very pressured, and then you know we always leave the game and say, "Wow, such and such a team that lost, they should have won." And I have seen so many times, and more particularly last year, while you know Brazil was playing playing USA at the tournaments of the nation, you know there was clearly the Brazil was a better team. They were winning the game three to one but whenever it gets to the end of the game and when things started getting very heated and so forth there was so much of a missed calls on different situations and so forth that turned the game around uh it's not to say that we're going to put a pressure or i mean you know fault on the official but i would love to see more analytics when the game matters most or when the things get very heated and only very crucial, what kind of analytics do we see the official making, you know, calls? You know, what's the situation that would make a change on the whole emotion, the whole flow of the game? That's neat. It's a neat, neat question. Marsh, appreciate, appreciate the call there from Houston. So uh, what do you guys think? That was an interesting take. Well, one thing about, about football, I guess there's a different pronunciation. Right. I never knew that. So uh, is that uh, it has the largest home field advantage. You're talking about soccer. soccer, yeah. Um, and, and they attribute it to referees. And, and well, <laughs> well, they attribute a portion to referees. And you can actually measure that in soccer because you can, it, like they do in basketball, you look at the videos and you try to go and you categorize these, the, sco- the scoring. And in basketball and soccer, there's so many opportunities. So, and, there's, and the game's long and there's lots of going on. So and it's the biggest advantage. So they obviously apportion a portion of that to the referees. But I think the question's an interesting one. Like just if you looked at let's call it let's imagine you had a metric that you could compute that talked about penalties called, penalty advantage, disadvantage. The question is a good one. 
Does it happen more near right. the end of the game? Mm-hmm. Does it happen more when the score is more one-sided than another? I mean, that's right. an so important question. It down, yeah. I mean, more than it's been in, done. I mean, the null yeah. has got to be that it does not. not correct. And we just notice it more in the big moments. I, the, but isn't it the case that there's kind of conventional wisdom in basketball that the referees put their whistle in the pocket late in games, tight games or important yes. games, they kind of let them play? Yes. That would be the conventional wisdom, mm. right? Yeah. Yeah, I think the conventional wisdom is you're not getting a foul call near the end of the game. You know, we have a we have a colleague here now in his second year, uh, faculty in, in operations, information, and decisions, Etai Green, and his dissertation research looked at um, a stackhouse data for baseball and home plate. We need to have him on the show to break it down because really fine, high level research on how referees calls depends on situation where they are on the plate and situation. So it's only it's only in ambiguous situations when it's kind of on the edges of the plate, and then he looks at when do they make the call according to the the, the count, the pitch count. And my memory has been a little while now, but my memory of it is that they were reluctant to make calls that ended the at bat. It's 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 the the uh, count is an enormous predictor of the call at the borders. It's amazing. Okay, so what we're saying is that the umpire doesn't be the one, want to be uh, a two two. He's much less likely to call an ambiguous pitch a strike than at three one. That's right. The, and sa- and the and exact and same pitch at three one. Right. Yeah. A strike is going to is going to is going to punch. That's a great analysis. Three and zero and O two are, are the biggest. Unambiguous. Three and zero and O two are the biggest differential. Right from the baseline. Okay. Because three and zero, it's almost impossible to get a walk. You a ball, you got to throw it outside the zone. And at zero and two, it's very hard to get a strike. You got to throw it right over the plate. So it's this question in, in a microcosm. So it's not a big mm-hmm. game situation necessarily, though. I think Etai goes into some of that as well. It'd be interesting to hear hear the details. But at, at the lowest level, just in at bat, and when the, when it's especially important in an at bat situation, the umpire essentially. Doesn't want to be well, the one. Well, as Adi always points out, you only get 27 outs in a baseball game. And, you know, you could call every out that you call a high leverage situation. In other words, you're taking 4% of the, at- of the uh, outs away. So that has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. You can join the conversation, 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. Cade Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew, Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen. Jump in here and join us if you'd like. You can also email us if you want to, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter. We're especially active on Wednesday mornings, Tuesdays, let you know what's going on, but also throughout the week. Our handle, at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. We are rolling into the part of the show where we have some guests this half hour and next half hour. We are delighted and honored in this half hour to have Adam Kingsbury join us. Adam is the head coach for the Canadian women's curling team. They happen to be the world champions and the odds-on favorites to win Olympic gold in just one month. So, Adam... Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Adam, we're delighted to have you. Where are you calling in from this morning? I'm uh, calling from Ottawa, Ontario, up in Canada. All right. We appreciate you making the making the time for us. We want to hear about what's going on with your team. We, we, we talk, we do. You might be surprised, but we talk about curling on the show. We've had a curling guest on the show before. We were talking about it just in the last couple of weeks, and we're all... When we talked about Olympic sports we were looking forward to, it's one of the sports that came up. We can't fully explain our enthusiasm, but we have enthusiasm. So we're, we're glad you're here. But then 
we just learned when we started digging that you're not just the Canadian curling coach, but also you're an analytics fan. And so yeah. you're going to bring together a couple of our enthusiasms here. Appreciate you taking the time. Well, I'm uh, really excited to talk about this area. Uh, a lot of the time, um, people, uh, I try to, I try to kind of simplify it again. But I think with this audience and with uh, the panel that you guys have, we can kind of get into the nitty gritty a bit. Adam, we can for on the analytics side. I'm not sure we can on the curling side. That's the challenge. So why don't you give us like a curling primer, like curling 101 for audience members who who aren't as familiar with it as you are. Yeah, certainly. So I think when you when you watch the game on TV, especially if you pick up a game um, throughout the middle, it, it seems like it's quite difficult. But it, but it's actually relatively simple if we uh, learn just a few basic rules. So a uh, game is played over 10 ends. Each team has four players who uh, throw two rocks per end, alternating with their opponents. Now, simply put, the goal is to have more of your stones closer to the button, the, the middle of the ice, than your opposition does at the end of um, the end. Now, the, the one thing that's confusing to some people is that the only rocks that count are the ones that are closest. So let's say um, uh, I have a team and I'm playing against you guys. If I have one that's just uh, close to the middle uh, and you guys have one that's maybe an inch further away, but all of the other 16 rocks are in play, the only one that counts is the one that's closest. Right. So this, yeah, this is sense. similar to bot. I've played yeah. bocce before. It's similar to well, and, horseshoes, and, washers. This, yeah, this the, you know, it's the closest in wins. Mm-hmm. And if you have two closer than the other one, you get two points as opposed to them. Mm-hmm. You nailed mm-hmm. it. Okay. So, uh, in can you give us one more kind of background? What makes a good curling? Is it player? What 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 makes one good at curling? Yeah. So it, it's um it's such an a. Uh, it's an amazing game because it requires so many different skill sets. So um, one of the things that these uh, high-level athletes do is that they're so talented and they're, they're quite strong um, athletically, so you need good balance. But um, So I come from a golf background, and um, the two sports themselves are, are remarkably similar. So That's surprising. Ability, yeah, well, the, the ability to stay uh, in balance, the ability to adjust um, your touch, uh, have good vision to um, make little subtle adjustments on the fly. Um, and, you know, so our climate in Canada, uh, we have six months of really um, hot summers and six months of just uh, apocalyptic winters. So, <laughs> the, yeah, the, the sports themselves are um, they're a very good um, anecdote for each other. Oh, golf, golf, and golf and curling, right? Yeah. So, did you? My my understanding is curling is almost a social pursuit in Canada, not just Canada, but northern states in the U.S. So, did you grow up curling competitively, or was all of your competitive sport golf? And if yeah, not so, playing competitively, were you socially doing a lot of curling? And where did you grow yeah. up? Uh, so, I actually grew up um, most of my most of my life in Ottawa. So, um, I grew up. Um, so throughout my university uh, tenure, I actually played uh, competitive golf. So we don't have uh, eligibility um, limitations like you do down in the U.S. So I actually played uh, for 11 seasons. Now, our um, our golf is not at the level of uh, NCAA, and all of our greatest golfers usually go down and um, get scholarships uh, down south. Um, but curling is, is a sport that I've always played uh, recreationally and really only really only got into um, studying the game 
the last uh, four years. Um, prior to that, I've been most of my research um, for my uh, doctoral dissertation has been um, looking at the putting stroke uh, under social pressure. So uh, I'm a soft quant is the way that I describe it. Um, what is a soft know, the, quant? A soft quant. Well, I mean, so I, I do multi-level modeling and, um, and, and I know that uh, there are certainly experts uh, statistically um, who would be far more knowledgeable in terms of uh, methodologies used. Um, but when you're in the behavioral sciences, what we're really looking at is how can we explain kind of human phenomena um, with a little more of a rigorous approach rather than just using our gut to uh, make our decisions. So we could talk for the next hour with you about that topic, and maybe we'll have you back on to talk about it. But and, and maybe we'll have time at the end to get come back to it. But can you tell us how you're applying those methods and those questions to your curling team? Yeah, certainly. So curling is a is a sport that that seems it's tailor made for an analytical approach. But the truth is, is that um, we are uh, I'm not going to say archaic, but we're just at its infancy. Um, for the questions that could be asked. So right now, a lot of the analysis is based on win expectancy and uh, scoreboard analysis. So um, again, you could scrape the internet for um, every historic game played, and you can start to get an understanding of, well, um, when this team has uh, this uh, lead, or if this team is down by this many points with uh, this, these number of ends remaining, what is the likelihood of winning? Sure. But I mean, again, uh, so win expectancy is one of those uh, metrics that there's so many um, issues that, that come with it. So what I've tried to do is um, take it one step further and look at the shot by shot or the within end um, performance to see if we can kind of tease out that win expectancy a little bit. Right. Um, and I guess with, with the team that I'm working with specifically, um, really using um, just a rigorous uh, data collection protocol to, to inform practice. So if there's um, a number of things that we could work on as a team, uh, why would we be practicing the things that we're already good at? And more importantly, why would we be practicing the shots that we might only see one, two, three right. times in, a, in an event? So... Um, it's been a pet project for me, and uh, but we, we really um, do gain a lot of insight if we just ask the right questions. Got it. So we're talking to Adam Kingsbury. Adam is head coach of the Canadian Olympic women's curling team. This is the, the current world champion team and the favorite going into the Olympics. Adam has a background in golf, and, and, and he's studying for his Ph.D. in analytics and human behavior, applying that to his team. You're talking about making a special use of this in your training, but I think we need to better understand yet what you're talking about when you're looking at analytics in, within an end. So are you, you know, spatial analytics is a big deal right now. Are you, are you observing where the, where the, are they rocks? Where the stones? Where the rocks where are. Where the rocks are? Like, I suppose that's a big deal, right? So you could look at the point expectancy given the distribution of the rocks is that is that is that the kind of thing you're doing or what is it exactly that you're looking at when you're trying to come up with what you should be practicing well i just i, I love that you mentioned that and um so I, I certainly know in nba when we look at um you know three-point conversion rate and, um uh, certainly in uh, soccer there's a lot of spatial analytics done and and i think that this right now um, the over the next quadrennials um that that's really where we're going to go so 
am I collecting that data for uh, my team? Absolutely. But the truth is, is that we just need, um, I guess we need the technology. We need the, uh, the infrastructure set up in place um, to be able to collect large um, uh, volumes of data here for this. So again, what we call is, um, it's called shot tolerance. So the, the skip will put the broom down and say, all right, I want you to place this rock right in this position here. Now, um, what people might not be aware of is that the, the shots themselves are scored subjectively by um, statistical volunteers who come to the events on a zero to four point scale. So hmm. four is the shot is made as called, zero is a complete miss, and then one, two, three is uh, somewhere in between. So a lot of the players, however, there's this prevailing uh, mentality that the statistics associated with this game are useless or not nearly as meaningful as they can be. Um, and that's based on a lot of anecdotal experience saying, well, um, you know, there's a 90-year-old volunteer who scored uh, this draw as a hit, so we don't pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I think, you know, again, I'm preaching to the choir here, but that's such a, it's such a pivotal mistake that is made if you don't understand truly um, all of the amazing things that we can use the data for. So um, the spatial analysis is, is something that I think um, there's a lot of opportunity. Um, but truth be told, what we're looking at, uh, for me personally, would be um, end-by-end performance. So if we have a player who is, let's say, an 85% shooter across the board, but yet in N3, 4, and 5, they're 72%. Um, is that because we're calling a specific shot that's more difficult? Is it because their energy levels are dipping? Was it um, an emotional outburst? Was there an interaction with a teammate that might have uh, caused them to lose their focus a bit? So when I talk about the behavior analytics, it's, um, it's always using performance as our, um, as our main focus and then asking the relevant questions and seeing whether or not they're related to performance. When you talk about performance, so I I can totally understand using this sort of scoring scheme to judge performance of individual players and maybe assess their strengths and weaknesses for specific shots. I would think that there's also an analytical game sort of on the strategy side, like, like in terms of determining what type of shot one should have at, at a particular moment in an end you know should should you be you know throwing up another guard stone or should you be you know actually attacking the opponent's guard stones at this point um how much of the analytics is kind of focused on on kind of the i guess the shot calling as opposed to the actual performance of the shot once it's called yeah i i'd say very much so and that, that's a great point so um what i always like to say is let's just assume we're going to play 10 ends so if you're up by uh, a number of points, a lot of the times, uh, as you mentioned, this game is rooted. It's a very social game. It's, uh, um, it's predicated on etiquette and respect for your opponent and self-policing, very similar to golf. Um, but let's assume that we're going to play 10, and um, you're going to win every game by giving your skip um, a shot for the win in the 10th end. So now working backwards from that, um, you can just do simple scoreboard math. So if we start the game with the with last rock and we take two points, then we force our opponent to one, then our opponent forces us to one and so forth. You can quickly kind of do some um, 
crude probability calculations about how risky do we want to be. So the great thing about curling is that you can score multiple points, but to do so, you have to junk it up, so to speak. So the more rocks that are in play, the more um, chance there is for you to score multiple points, but at the same time, um, the greater the likelihood of you giving up a big steal. So uh, great skips and great teams are constantly aware of this uh, delicate balance between risk versus reward. And um, decision-making training, um, it's all about on the fly, being able to make those calculations. And uh, I, th I think you nailed it. So um, we're working on that stuff all the time. But right now, there really isn't a, a concrete uh, guide, so to speak, on what is the what are the best decisions to be made? So, Adam, this is Eric Brado. I have, first, I have two questions. Let me start with the first one. Um, you mentioned about scoring each uh, throw between 0 and 4. What's the, if you'd like, the standard error of accuracy? Like, if you say, I want, the, I want the stone to end up in this place, is it 6 inches, a foot? Can you just give us an idea of, like, how accurate can you get something to a particular location that you want? Yeah, so, so and that's a great question. Um, so some people, uh, there's a number of uh, iPad um, software programs that, that some coaches are using to, to score a shot, and um, they come up with tolerance guides, right? So they would say the elite players um, within a rock probably each way would be considered acceptable. Um, if we were scoring beginners, maybe that uh, tolerance would uh, increase a little bit. But the truth is, is that um, there are a number of acceptable misses. There are some that are just absolutely um, dead zones. So the key is great teams understand, well, we're going to call for the shot to be, let's say, on the top of the eight-foot circle. Um, and it could be anywhere from the eight-foot, the 12-foot. It could be a guard. But if this rock travels even... Um, three feet uh, past where we've called it, it's in a very difficult spot. Mm. And again, that, that's something that we just call a competitive IQ, and that's where the experience of playing the game um, really um, kicks in for a lot of these players. So um, if we can see part of what I'm trying to do is how can we understand this game from a research and just curiosity perspective, and then how can we use some of these techniques that we know are... Um, valuable in so many different areas um, and use that to kind of help better decision making and um, is there anything that we can do to scout opponents etc so I mean the again the the uh, applications are so varied and it's uh, just exciting work we're talking to Adam Kingsbury Adam is head coach of the Canadian Olympic women's curling team current world champions and favorite in the Olympics next month one clarifying question we're talking about the 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 player who who throws the rock but there's also a sweeping action so they have some responsibility for where this thing ends up too right very much so and and what's great about sweeping is that so if you so for all those who uh, don't really know anything about curling but certainly it's one of those sports that in the olympics you watch it and there, there's a lot of excitement around it so um a thrower is is um so the skip will put the broom down and the person throwing the rock is, is obviously trying to um release it directly at the broom. Now, there's always going to be an error, whether it's, you know, uh, an inch or two uh, tight or an inch or two wide is what we call it. But a, a really good sweeping tandem can know 
that it's uh, tight. And if they start sweeping right away, and depending on where they sweep, they can actually correct that um, mm-hmm. trajectory a little bit. Now, that's for those kind of up hit weights, we call it. Now, when it comes to uh, the tuck shots, so the draws, the guards, um, if you have a strong athletic sweepers, the thrower can always throw it a bit light and the sweepers can drag it. The one thing you don't want to do as a, as a shooter is throw it and take your sweepers completely out of it because the weight was too, um, it was too up. So um, as you can quickly see, there's so many different things that, that can be considered here, uh, and it's exciting. So I'm a very casual uh, observer of curling every four years when it comes on the Olympics, perhaps. And and is and you've it held out some tantalizing measures that might make the game more interesting to a viewer who doesn't really know what's going on. Uh, if there's a way to score every play, is there a way to produce, if you will, a batting average for a, a curler or a sweeper that allow me to kind of judge? Oh, this person is is Hall of Fame level. Is there any of that in in this? Is it coming? Um, and um, and and how would you construct? such a thing if, if it if it's possible uh yeah so i would say um if we looked at the game historically i mean every shot that's ever been thrown uh we know that there is um there are historical performances so we know that a team uh more or less if they can curl approximately 85 percent over an event um they're, they're going to win a lot of events now we can look at that between the men's game the women's game um and while we have just just to clarify to come up with that 85 percent you're t- you, you basically somehow take the score this zero to four scoring and basically make it binary you know every shot is considered either a, a make or a miss yeah you nailed it and um so but because there are so many different shots that one could play uh players could um have you know they could be a phenomenal uh hitter um or they could be really uh good at drawing especially late in games, um, but the truth is, is that we just don't have data sets. We just don't have that information. So I think mm-hmm. you know, sports like MLB, uh, NHL, the ShotLink data set on the PGA Tour is something that's just really incredible. Um, but in curling, we we don't have that information, and unless teams are collecting it themselves, um, there's just a, a huge opportunity. And I, I really think that this will be pushed by. Um, enhancing viewer experience, right? All the greatest um, uh, technological advancements are usually done because the, um, the the networks will invest a little bit in the infrastructure. So um, I, I just think that, yeah, this is a game that we can, it, it, it's great to watch at home on TV. And um, if we could, you know, add some of those numbers for the, the casual viewer. We can get people more excited about the game, and we can just uh, make it more enjoyable in general. Have you approached, um, like, Crossover? Uh, Crossover is a company founded a few years back by a Penn graduate to uh, basically to, to film amateur basketball, and he's now a gigantic a company. was just recently purchased by a major company. I think ESPN may have bought it. It'd be a great thing to have for curling, and basically, it you takes you send them the video, and they score it. I mean, you have to train them, and and it's relatively inexpensive, and then you can put online all this data. And he produces databases, and and it just rolls from there. Have you thought about moving in that direction? Well, no, that, and that's why I have conversations with with um, people like yourselves because honestly, I like I said, I'm I'm here as the coach, and uh, you know, there are far smarter people than I from a technological um, standpoint or a methodological standpoint who who just kind of know these things. So, um, like I said, we're at our we're at the infancy here, and 
but but you're right. I think that there's probably a really simple solution to a lot of the things that I'm mentioning here. So, Adam, just one last question. Is there strategy? Like we were talking about strategy for football in the first half hour of our show today. Like, are you aggressive early, conservative late, or is there anything, is there any general principles about strategy? Yeah, definitely. So, um, the the big thing, and I think it's always been done in curling, is that um, as I as I mentioned, there's there's their scoreboard analysis. So one of the uh, the playbooks on on our team, and it's it's not, uh, and I'm happy to share this because um, it, it's not a big deal. But I, if our team, for example, starts with hammer. And then we blank the first dance. Now, for those um, casual listeners, you can score points, hey, but if you can manage, Adam, to- let me jump in real quick because we're going to run out of time. We have yeah. less. We have about a minute, less than a minute. So it, you, we're not going to be able to go into as much detail on strategy as we would like to do. You have a lot to say about this sport. We have a ton of questions for you. And yeah. the golf thing, I think we're going to have to have you back at some time, maybe on the other side of the Olympics, hear about the experience, and we can t- talk in more detail about some of the analytics you're doing and would like to do. I would love that. Honestly, I think we could talk about this for uh, all morning, actually. Good fun. Good fun. Adam Kingsbury, appreciate your taking the time to be with us this morning. It, it was a pleasure, guys. Thank you for having me. All right. That was Adam Kingsbury. He's head coach of the Canadian Olympic women's curling team. They are the current world champions, and they are the favorites heading into next month's Olympics in South Korea. Adam Kingsbury was calling in from Ottawa this morning. That has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have another half to go. Two full quarters. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics Live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Coming to you from Huntsman Hall here at the University of Pennsylvania. This is Cade Massey hosting with my buddies and faculty colleagues, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow. The whole crew is here. You can join us. Want to jump into the conversation? Give us a ring. 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at WMoneyBall. You can add us if you want to get a response out of us as you think about the world of sports analytics during the week. We are just off the phone with the head coach for the Canadian women's curling team, world champion and favorite going into the Olympics. Guys, that was, I mean, look, it's always fun to talk about the sport. We, we, I'm we, really stoked to watch a lot of curling in the Olympics, I have to say. Oh. I, I was kind of wondering what I was going to watch once football was out of my life one way or the you other. Forgot and that it was coming I up. forgot about the Olympics, and that's sad. You know, I think the Olympics start the week after the Super yeah. Bowl. I mean, they they, yes. weren't, they knew what they were doing when they scheduled this way. Yeah. Right? We wrap up football season. We go into mourning. Yep, and that's then, right. And, you know, on our fourth day of mourning, the, the well, Olympics We need off. five or six days to realize basketball hasn't really gotten interesting yet. That's right. It's not there yet. Yeah, and, st- and, and then we're ready. And then we're ready. They got to hit us with curling, like the first. Well, oh, so, it's got to be opening ceremonies, and they transition right into <laughs> curling. Look, we can we can joke all we want, but all of us like you know when you find oh, yourself I, in front I'm of. Not, a, I'm not. I'm not you being sarcastic here. You no, I really am excited thing. about it. So, what did we learn from that conversation with Adam? What 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 did you hear him say that you didn't know ahead of time? 
Well, I, I think it's that, to a certain extent that that there is even like a lot of analytics energy being applied to the sport that, yeah. that I think – and that it, it sort of is already at the point where it's making a big difference. I mean I – I naively, you know, thought. I mean, I assumed the Canadians were going to be favored going into the Olympics because, you know, it's it's curling is much bigger in Canada than it is sure. essentially anywhere else. Um, but that analytics is actually kind of, you know, part of the reason that they have an edge. Yeah, I like the fact that you took him. We were talking about essentially player evaluation right. for the first part, and you and asked versus what in, about in, 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 in game strategy? strategy. Yeah, and so we right. always end up having this mm-hmm. distinction, and yep. in football, it's a big distinction. And and it matters on both fronts, and it matters differently in some sports. But yeah. he's clearly working. And, and I actually, a part we didn't get a chance to ask him is, you know, there there's within Canada, presumably within every country, but within Canada, it's very highly publicized. There's kind of a competition among the different, like almost kind of state provinces for who gets to go to sure, the Olympics. Sure, sure. And how much of that, you know judgment on who gets to go is is based on on kind of analytic savvy versus just Good. kind of in-game performance right you know and that that would be an interesting question too and a question that i wanted to ask him yeah. and we didn't get to we clearly need to have him back is what role does noise play yeah. in curling you know sports have different levels of randomness i don't have a sense of how much randomness yeah process there is versus well, outcome was, again was, that's why i was yeah. trying to ask him he was saying it's basically the width of a stone so i was just trying to understand just the throw like what's a like is it oh yeah what know, the two sort of standard like, deviation is some on it gives you right. some sense of that doesn't seem like very much but maybe maybe that matters a lot on a curling what's it it's not a pitch what is it on uh, the ice ice yeah. on the ice um so one of the reasons we talk about curling on a show like Sheet, this i is, guess It's because it's a sheet of ice, yeah. Interesting. So one of the reasons we brought them on, one of the reasons we'd like to talk about curling is to demonstrate the value of analytics in pretty far-ranging fields, the ubiquity, essentially, of analytics. So um, we need to think about – we've talked about curling as kind of our canonical example for a while, and then we just talked to a – Gold champ, a world champion Olympic coach. So we need to think about what's another sport where it would demonstrate the the far reach of analytics. In the meantime, we have another guest for the next half hour. We have Peter Keating joining us. Peter is senior writer at ESPN the magazine. If you see that magazine, you know he has a regular column. His column's called The Numbers. He's in there every week, or is it every other week they're published that magazine? And he's been doing this for some time. He's been writing on stats and sports since 1999. Peter, welcome back to the show. Hey, how are you? I'm good, man. Good good to have you. On. We're always happy to have you on the show. Where are you calling in from this morning? I am uh, actually at home in lovely Montclair, New Jersey. All right. That's not too far from us. Same neck of the woods, basically. So we appreciate you taking the time to join us. What you know, we we we've had you on enough that we we probably don't need to dive in too much. Peter's one of the leading writers on sports and, and analytics, and he was one of the earliest, I would say, writers on sports and analytics. The field's kind of changed since you've been doing this, right? How where do you how would you characterize the state of the field and how it's been moving in the last few years? Well, it's interesting because um, I find that there are many things that used to take, let's say, a few sentences to explain or. A paragraph. I and mean, when I started this, we, we we had to define standard deviation every time. <laughs> every time you use it, right? And you don't right? think you still don't need to do that? <laughs> well, that that is true. So let's just say maybe my editors are acclimated enough to it that we're able to right. we're able to skip over some of the introductory stuff. But I just think it's part of the lingo now. You know, right. I, I think that when you see the Hall of Fame arguments that are going on, or you see the statistics that are on television, or you just hear casual fans making arguments. Um, the, the folks who are saying 
they can tell things just because of the eye test or, you know, they know and there's no reason to have, nobody, nobody, that just doesn't sound right anymore. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, there's reference to quantitative analysis in almost everything that regular fans talk about. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's not just, it's not just um, odd corners of bookstores that no longer exist, right? Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's part of the chatter that, that goes on. And, and I think that, um, you know, there are a bunch of, bunch of writers and analysts that just made it seem like you could do this without um, without losing a sense of why people love sports in the first place. Right. So I, th- I think that's what's really advanced, is that people, regular fans, can, can use some analysis at least. Now, whether they're using it well or not is a whole different, you know, kettle of fish, but um, there's a sense that this is just part of the fabric of what makes us sports fans, not people trying to graft weirdo math on something we all you know want to want to keep away from mathematics you know That's an interesting observation because early on it does feel like you're either a fan you love the sport or you're a numbers guy and and or a numbers girl or a numbers cruncher and you're saying you see these things living more harmoniously than they used to they're at least considered more complementary than they used to be. Mm-hmm. 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 Peter, yeah, I think that's right. you cover the whole world of sports. Does does the growth of sports analytics, does it make you more interested in talking about baseball because now you've got this language that everyone uses, or does it make you want to go to little far corners where it's just emerging? For example, we're just off the phone talking about curling analytics. Right. I think that, by the way, just, just on that point, curling is the single greatest Sport for, <laughs> for showing and talking about win probability. Right? Oh, really? Oh, um, really? It's, it's very hard to talk about win probability, uh, uh, to, to at least even think about it, in sports that don't have discrete play states, right? Well, curling is all about the situation is A, then somebody makes a move, and then the situation is, is, is I should say N, is, the, is N plus one. And um, it's very easy to get people to talk to about and think about win probability and win probability added based on one game state moving to the next game state because curling is all about, you know, you got about 10 minutes in between <laughs> each game state, right? Right. And, it, and the, whole, the whole sport is about what, the, what, what, the, uh, you know, what, what you're going to do next to advance the, game, the win probability the most in the next game state. So Pe- there's, there's, there's an example for you. Peter, you have you, you have my buddy Audie's attention because he uses sports examples all the time in his stats classes on it on on conveying <laughs> well, these there, concepts. There you go. I mean, it, it is uh, you know. So I love I love both, but I do love going to far flung corners of either sports um, or math to figure out something new. Partially because, and I'm sure you guys know this. I mean, you guys must encounter this. It's the same way in politics. These days, everybody is a sports expert, right? And so you're talking to somebody, and they want to come up and say, you know, Tony Gwynn's the greatest hitter who ever lived, something like that, right? Or, or you know, uh, Barry Bonds is not a Hall of Famer. A real Hall of Famer would be Kirby Puckett. And <laughs> you got to stand there, and you got to think, well, how far do I want to spend the next X minutes of my life going into why I don't think that, right? So, um, so the kind of broad off stuff, it's fine, but it, it, I think it's more interesting to go further afield. In fact, I go, I go, <laughs> I go pretty far afield into math that I can't understand or do myself, but I can understand well enough to explain it to people and then have 
you know, real-life mathematicians actually do the process. I just wrote about um, applying network analysis to college basketball, and I, I, <laughs> my brain breaks down long before algebra becomes matrix algebra, okay? Well, now well, um, we'll conv- convey it to us because we saw that you've done some work on this, and it's intriguing because I've not seen it before. A network analysis to evaluate college basketball teams? It's pretty cool, yeah. Um, you can string up teams on a network, the way you construct any other kind of network, whether it's a social network or a mathematical network. And then there are algorithms. Actually, it's very similar to Google's page rank. You know, when you say, when you search for, let's say, the Golden Gate Bridge on Google, Google just doesn't tell you um, how many times Golden Gate Bridge appears on the Internet, right? It looks for... Alta Vista did that. (laughs) And see where they are now. I started out using all the Vista like twenty something years ago. <laughs> That's and I, right. I, I, and I got so you know how you how you um you know, you adapt to what you use, right? And Alta Vista was on my computer so often I was I was a really late holdout to switching over to Google. I think oh they my. went out of business when I gave up on them. <laughs> um, but right, Alta Vista did that, right? So you know what I'm saying. Yep. Google Google finds sites but then sees how many sites link to those sites and how many sites link to those sites and it's all relational. And so by um, basically by saying how often is this all linked to, you can say what's the most important site um, or, or how, many, how, many ta- how, how important is Golden Gate Bridge. Well, if you do something very similar, when you call each, now I know half the people listening are already falling asleep, but this is actually kind of cool. Um, if, you put, if you put college basketball teams or any, any group of teams that play each other but don't play each other comprehensively on a network, and you call each team a point, and each time a team plays another team, a connection between those two teams, you can use a very similar algorithm to say, um, what's the mo- what is the best team on the network? In other words, how strong would all of these teams have to be in order for their results to have come out the way that they did? And that is a really interesting way to solve what they call a transitivity problem, which is that if, if I beat you and you beat Cade and Cade beats me, well, then what do we do with that? And the answer is you can put all the teams on a network and say, um, what, what order of power do these teams have in the network? I wonder what the difference is in the math underlying that versus just stringing together a bunch of, you know, ones and zeros and, and estimating the, the most likelihood, the, 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 the most likely. It's a big difference in the mathematics. Okay. So, what, what... so if you try to do it the standard way, which is essentially like a power score for each team and yeah. then do some kind of Bradley Terry Luke model or some so kind of So there's some difference between yeah. the team and that maps right. to the probability A beats B. That's right. And that's essentially uh, um, you're not going to get the transitivity in that process uh, because you're not, allowing them, you're not allowing them to have a non-transitive loop, which you can have in the network analysis. And, but the question is whether you believe they, they exist. And the reason why we do the models that we use is that they're simple and there's so much so many interactions. We don't do interactions. That's essentially what we're that's saying. The, that's we're, your, is that's, all about that's, the interactions? Right. We're not that's doing interactions thing. in the yeah. standard model because we basically feel it has to be transitive. But in a, in a basketball game, it might not be transitive. Or is it? I mean, so basically... Well, it's interesting. If you look at the results using small groups, um, they make sense because you can see what the results should be. If you look at the results in mediums, there's not a lot of ways it can muck up. If you look at results in medium-sized groups, even NFL teams over a season, uh, sometimes the results can be a little dubious. But with college basketball teams, you do have 350 teams playing 
35 game seasons. And I'll tell you, the results are often when, like, when, when the when the power rankings that come out of, of that matrix algebra, right, would come out and they differ from the conventional polls. It's usually because the teams that are higher rated by the by the uh, the network are being undervalued by the polls. So I, I I do put some faith in them. But 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 let me but let me put this to you one step further. Um, since you guys are jumped all over the transitivity and the models and all this, since you guys are since, since we have at least three people here still with us, um, <laughs> as, as as I put it in the in the column, um, we live in meta you know meta times. So take one further step back. And instead of saying, what is, what is the best team in this group, what if we ask, what is the most important team in the network? What's the most central team in the network? That's going to be a team that adds a lot of information to the network. And almost by definition, that means it's involved in a lot of upsets. The good team losing to, to worse teams, or it's a worse team, or it's, a, it's a bad team beating better teams. Um, think about a, a deck of cards. Um, if you take out one particular card of the deck, the deck reshuffles. Well, which card causes the deck to reshuffle the most? By definition, that's going to be a chaotic team, a team that adds entropy or, or um, chaos to the network. And it turns out these guys at, uh, I should say a guy and a gal, at uh, Furman University have actually connected um, measures of centrality in the network called betweenness, teams the most central in the network, with chaotic play. Um, teams that are more chaotic actually are involved in more upsets during the regular season and win more NCAA tournament games um, in the postseason, it, you, which is a whole new way of looking at this than I had thought about. Before. Peter, I thought you were talking about it in a symmetric way, but the way you characterize it there at the end, it sounds like it's, it's asymmetric in that the, the, at least that result, it was a positive thing to be involved in chaotic play. There's no reason to that that would be the case, right? It could be that also teams that are supposed to be good but lose unexpectedly are, are, are highly chaotic. Yes, but let's say you find out that Michigan State in 2015 is um, a chaotic team, and they're a good team, and that's basically the only signal that they may be taken down in the NCAA tournament. All the other indicators are positive, but it's a hint that once they go up against an underdog who otherwise doesn't look like they have much chance of winning, Interesting. maybe they have a bigger chance of losing. And that also, I, I should say, that leads to a really important point, and this is something that... Um, this is an interesting dichotomy between you know, regular fans and analysts and people looking at the math on this, which is that consistency is a bad thing for an underdog. Like for sure. Regular analysts always praise consistency. In fact, they say they always say a player needs to be more consistent, and what they really mean is he needs to be better. Right? For years, I heard people say Vinny Testaverde needs to be more consistent. He was really consistent. He threw 23 interceptions a year every year, right? Um, he, he just had good. He just had, you know, good qualities and bad qualities. Right. And people say, well, he's inconsistent. They mean they want him to get rid of the bad qualities. Um, anyway, if you're an underdog, um, especially in a win or a go home situation, right? Um, you wanted all other things being equal. I mean, you like to be better, but you can't just manufacture being better. But you'd like to be inconsistent. I mean, that's actually what the definition of, uh, you know, the phrase puncher's chance 
means, right? For sure. Like, um, you know, so, so if I said to you, you know, we're two football teams and my team is better than yours and you have a choice of being a little bit worse at everything or substantially worse at everything but with the best kickoff and punt returner in the game, um, you'd much rather be that second team, right? Because you, cause you, you're going to probably get blown out more often. But every now and then, you're going to win a couple of games or a game here or there because you're going to have a couple of return touchdowns. Yeah, so, so uh, we we do. I, that's actually a very compelling point because we talk about this kind of trade off of like investing in variant. You know, if you're kind of mm-hmm. a me, being mediocre, consistently mediocre is is obviously worse than sort of investing in variance. Trust the process. Um, I, I my question is kind of: Do you th- feel like college basketball is specifically kind of in a sweet spot for this for for using networks to to evaluate teams in the sense that you know you've got a lot of teams, obviously. But you also have a lot of games, you know, we because we, we, college football, for example, is college football, in your opinion, a little bit too sparse, like not enough games for using network theory? Or is it just that it hasn't been applied yet? Well, it probably has enough games to have it apply in most cases, but because there aren't um, as many games... So the results aren't as robust, and so a lot of times you get teams ending up fairly close to each other and not distinct enough in the results to say, oh, yeah, this, this team should definitely be in the college football playoff, and this one shouldn't. I mean, you'll get four or five teams separated by a few points, right? And so um, I think the results are more thorough and also more compelling. There's another thing, which is that we're still looking for the right um, elements of statistics to use to analyze college football teams. College basketball teams, you can throw a lot of information in that network other than wins and losses if you want to. You can use the point margins, but you can also, um, you know, you can look at betweenness or centrality to a network and any statistic or any result. And, you know, the four factors are well-known in college and overall basketball um i'm not sure we we know exactly like how how to measure explosiveness and how that compares to efficiency and what the value of a second down is to a first down it's it's, it's interesting it's not not as clear to me but but if you just do it with wins and losses and you string up on a network you get pretty good results Mm -hmm. we're talking to peter keating peter is senior writer at espn the magazine he has a regular column there has had for years called the numbers and reliably doing interesting work on analytics and sports. A, a practical question that you wrote on recently that is relevant in the next couple of weeks, a secret weapon you found when you looked at numbers on the Patriots. What, what was your take on that? <clears throat> okay, so have you guys ever noticed this? You're watching the Patriots, and it just seems like the other team is constantly playing uphill. Um, it's not just because the Patriots' defense is good. It was okay. It wasn't you know, Hall of Fame level. No, it was weird. No, no, they were horrible on play success. They gave up, reliably let people move down the field, but then they were really good on not not letting them convert to to points. Again and again, they rank higher in, or better, in uh, points allowed than in yards allowed. Yeah. Right? Um, So classic bend but don't break kind of philosophy. Yeah, and usually... But extreme. Right. And, 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 you know, usually you'd say, well... They like to say, Ben, but don't break, right? And um, this, this is an excuse you hear all the time. And 
you know, I don't know. I'm a Giants fan, and every time, every time I hear the Giants are bending but not breaking, it's right before they break. Right, right. right. Um, but the Patriots, year after year, rank higher in, uh, do better in points allowed than yards allowed, and it's it's largely because their opponents have terrible starting field position. Mm-hmm. And over the past few years, that's been because they routinely um, kick short of the goal line, or they kick just within the opponent end zone. And it happens again and again and again. Instead of taking a knee and going out to the 25-yard line, the opponents try to run the ball out, and they end up at the 16 or the 13 or the 23. And I got to wondering, is this, you know, is this strategic? And so back-to-back games this year, they played Denver um, and they played Oakland. And against Oakland, they didn't give Cordero Patterson even a chance. They kicked it deep into the end zone. And Guskowski, the kicker, who, who had some trouble last year, I think with his leg, um, he's no question he, he can boom it. He's booming it again this year. He kicked a career-long 58-yard field goal. So he can, he can put it wherever he wants. And um, there's actually video in one game of, uh, of Belichick screaming at everybody <laughs> to make sure it doesn't, the ball doesn't go into the end zone. So there's no question, even though they don't talk about it publicly, uh, this is a, tr- a strategic thing. And, and it's one of those areas where, um, you know, other teams don't want to worry about something where they might actually be able to get a strategic advantage if they thought about it. So the minute they get their hands on, like, a guy like Greg Zerline, they just like just just booming out of the other end zone. You know, I don't even want to think about what the right um, what the right equations are. <laughs> so, so Peter, Peter, you document this in your in your uh, in the article on the on the Christmas issue of ESPN the magazine, and, and you show how the Pats have each of the last two years made big moves toward kicks that are returned. So, whereas most teams are going the other direction or holding steady, every year for the last couple of years they've moved strongly in the direction of letting the other team return the ball and you document that it means that they have weaker starting field position but it's a relatively small difference and so is this a to me it strikes me as okay you can kind of you can kind of wave your hand at a small difference but or you can say this is belichick finding every last edge he can possibly find and if he can get the other team starting on their own 22 instead of their own 25, he'll take those three yards and make it, and make it something of it. Yeah, Peter, can I just ask a follow-up? This is Eric Bradley, a follow-up question to that. Is yeah. The mean is lower. Is What about the variance? Suppose your only goal was to minimize the number of kickoffs that, pick your thing, return for a touchdown, return to the 50. I would think, this is what I always think, if you punt the ball higher, kick the ball higher, kick it to the goal line, somewhere in five, You'll gain a couple yards, which, as Cade said, I don't think is a big difference, but you may dramatically reduce the number of plays that are run back to the end zone. Is that What, what have you found there? Okay, so, um, so that is, that is both a, an, in, there's an insight and there's a caution there, right? The caution there is, is that if you have a guy uh, who's kicking off for you who, who doesn't have good control over what he's doing, um, you can result in you, you can get those kicks run back, right? Um, but uh, there aren't that many kickoffs returned for touchdowns to begin with, and Guskowski hasn't had a kickoff return for a touchdown since 2010, even though he's kicking uh, fewer, something like 40%, um, only 40% of his uh, kickoffs are, are touchbacks. So, yes, this relies a little bit, uh, it relies a great deal on talent, but, but, but the insight is is that, 
there's not that much downside risk. Well, there's let's take the variance in the other direction as well. You'll get more drives starting inside the 15, say. Obviously, if you're letting them return it, than if you're letting them start their start at the 25. So variance kind of works in both directions there. And but but Eric's raising a great question. It'd be interesting to look at the variance. You know, Matt, our producer, points out that the NFL only changed the yard line where the ball comes out after touchback from the 20 to the 25. Two years ago, so it looks like that the evolution in um, Belichick's strategy maps pretty closely to that rule change. Which again, I mean, love him or hate him, you have to respect the way he understands the rules, bends the rules, pushes the rules, but also plays within the rules to find a strategic advantage. Yeah, the percentage of kickoffs returned in the past uh, since 2016 when the rules changed dropped, but just by a couple of points, and that might have happened anyway because place kickers keep getting stronger, but. What's interesting is there's only a couple of the kickers, and it also might happen by accident for any kicker in any year, but there's only two kickers for whom it has dropped, uh, I, I think the statistic is, by 10 points or more in each of the past two years. So you can see it actually Who? happening and happening on purpose. And that's Goskowski and um, I, I think the other guy is Justin Tucker, who, of okay. course, has a great leg and is a smart guy. And then, for all we know, may, may have concluded all this on his own just by watching. Well, they have a, they have a creative uh, special teams coach as well. So we're, we're down to just a few minutes. Uh, we can't let you go without hearing your take on the Super Bowl. Speaking of the Pats and our local Eagles. Uh, my Super Bowl is uh, shaping up this way. I am looking up uh, who is speaking at the Montclair Public Library on <laughs> Sunday. Um, or, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe I'll learn to ice skate. Um, uh, I'm a Giants fan. Yeah, it so, is kind of a nightmare matchup uh, for Giants barring, fans. Barring the Eagles meeting the Cowboys in the NFC Championship game before playing the Patriots, right. um, this is the worst possible um, outcome. I think, you know, I think here's my sophisticated, deep analytical take. I think the Patriots are going to crush them is what I think. Wow. And, um, and I think we should just all, uh, you know, eat Mexican food and drink beer together without turning the game on. But Did, I don't mean that against the NFL. I, I, you know, I'm not going <laughs> to – or for the NFL. I just mean I, I just I just can't believe these two teams. You know, the last time the Eagles paid the Patriots in Super Bowl, I had a big story to do, and I, I left Sunday open to write it because I just I just couldn't watch. So I'm, I'm sorry to be so – well, we appreciate oh that. No, we appreciate. See that you're doing this thing where you're you're an analyst, but you're also a deep fan, and these things can live together. But I, do, I want to push you. I want to push you towards some insight. We got can, one. Can you tell us? <laughs> can you tell us something about Foles? Do you believe a quarterback who has had the ups and downs that Nick Foles has had can perform yet again at the level that we've seen so far in the playoffs? And he's pretty much going to have to to give them a chance. So, can you break it down at that level? Can you tell us what your take is on Foles? Um, I think that that um, it's. Totally, and what we just said about inconsistency, right? Um, it's totally possible to believe that uh, a quarterback can have the game in his life, and if he has a, if, if, he, if he has wide swings and performance, there's a greater chance of that happening than if he's just boring and bad. Blake Bortles had the game of his life against the Steelers, and Foles just had his. It's just that it's really hard to do that two weeks in a row. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you were, you know, if you could do it two weeks in a row, you'd be doing it all the time. Yeah, but Foles so, didn't hold the uh, didn't hold the uh, Vikings to seven points. How does that play in? Well, I'm, I'm unnecessary. Go ahead. I just think I just think you know the, the Patriots are not just with kickoffs, but with every little thing have the have find the right way to find the people to exploit to turn little tiny mismatch ups into yeah. you know 
game-deciding matchup. Right, and, and so so it's a real um, disadvantage. I don't to... think Foles is that good, and uh, and I think the Patriots. You know, Patriots had the kind of game last weekend where where they could have been finished off, and since they weren't, I think uh, you know this again. This is not a very analytical way to look at things, but gosh, don't you just get the sense that. Um, they're going to be full throttle from moment one. I mean, I just... <laughs> Peter, you love it. I mean, our friend Eric Bradlow here is as quantitative as anybody in the world, and yet we love it when we get him into these moments of non-quantitative reasoning. <laughs> so you're fitting right in, Peter. Listen, man, we're going to have to let you go. We appreciate you taking the time to be with us. We love your work. Wish you the best with all of it. Thank you very much. It's always fun. You bet. That was Peter Keating, senior writer at ESPN, the magazine. You can see his work. In the magazine, regularly he writes a column there called The Numbers Has for years, and he's one of the most sophisticated data data journalists out there. That was Peter Keating, and this has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Got the whole crew here this morning, Cade, Eric, Adi, Shane. You can join us. Give us a ring, one eight four four wharton that's 1-844-942-7866. 1-844-942-7866. You can also email us, Matt Dats, standing by producer, boss man, Matt Dats. Waiting for your emails, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, especially if you're listening one of the four or five times we're replayed over the course of the week, not live, still a great way to reach out to us. We'll get back to you. You can also follow us on Twitter these days, at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. We follow our guests. We tweet periodically about what's going on. We keep the show uh, up to date on what, you know, we advertised, for example, yesterday that we had the curling coach from Canada in here. We're just off the phone with Peter Keating, uh, one of the great uh, sports analysts, long time, one of the first sports analyst journalists out there, sports analytics journalist. We have open lines in this last half hour. We've talked a lot about the Super Bowl. Left our own devices. We'll probably find it again. But there are some other things to talk about. What well, else? We have next week to talk about the Super Bowl, too. We have another week to talk about it. What else is on your mind, though? What else is going on in the, in the world of sports? Well, I'm obviously, for people that listen to Wharton Moneyball, I'm a huge tennis fan. Um, the Australian Open is going on right now. We're down to the final four for men and the final four for women. And I want to talk something about the men's side just for a second that caught my eye. So before yesterday's matches, so Roger Federer did defeat uh, Thomas Burdich, so Roger's in the semifinals, but let's go back, pretend he was in the quarterfinals. Here were the two odds, and I'm, I'm th- looking at Shane when I say this because I'll go back to your theory of coin flipping. Roger Federer to win the Australian, given he was in the quarterfinals, meaning he has to win three matches to win the Australian, was the same odds at the bookmakers as Rafa Nadal winning the French Open this year, and he's got seven coins to flip. Now, that to me was remarkable. They put Federer in the quarterfinals as the same odds as Nadal. Heuristic. To, why is that remarkable? Yeah, heuristic. Well, be, well, this is the way I think about it. So let's assume they were both, which is about right, they were both even money, so them against the field. So you just do the math. So, you know, I'm not saying the events are independent, but, you know, if Federer was 0. 0.8, 0. 0.8, 0. 0.8 to win three matches, that gets you to 0. 0.512, well, which is well, 50%. My, well, what does heuristic. Nadal have to be at to win seven coin flips in a row? Basically, well, the, like he's got to be like 0.95 or something like that. Me, me and Audie well, are having the same reaction. Me and yeah. Audie are having the same reaction. The heuristic is the, to get to the quarters is essentially a given for Nadal at the French. But let me just say, this was after. This was this prediction yeah. was even after, by the way. I don't know if you guys had followed it that closely. Nadal's injured now. 
he had to pull out of the Australian. He defaulted his match in the fifth set against Marin Cilic. He hurt himself in two matches. This was even after the, it's not before the healthy Nadal. I'm saying this was even the injured Nadal. So I agree with you. So that's not like a probability conditional on him participating no, in the no, French or, Open. Or even being healthy for the French Open. Just well, no, healthy, I understand. But like, it's not, you know, if if he doesn't actually play in the French Open... It was you, just the betting odds. I see. As, the betting odds as of now. Let's say it's conditional well, on playing. Happen if he doesn't play, right? So well, it's, okay. So that's the whole thing. Is so that course, it's, it's really conditional. It, it's conditional on him playing absolutely, in the French Open. The bets don't take place, right? But I would agree with you if you believe, and maybe you're right, that you know he's basically never lost. Well, he's only lost one match ever in the French Open. So let's assume that him losing the first four rounds are essentially close to a probability zero event. Yeah. Then maybe he's effectively at the same place Federer is. That's right. I just thought because of age an injury that's well, the Federer's part old too so that, that's part of it I mean I know but we have evidence right now that Federer's healthy right now in this tournament and in the quarterfinals yeah. we have no evidence except for this was even again after Nadal had to retire I from would, his match I would in the be French. I would be willing to believe that Nadal is a dominant, uh, you know, excessively dominant enough at the French well, that's, specifically that's, that's to overcome this sort of like Injury uncertainty that he maybe has as a disadvantage to what fe- to the federal comparison. Well, of course, now. I mean the Dolls won ten of the eleven yeah. French Opens he's played. Yeah. Also, you're looking at Vegas odds, um, which are high, esti- high estimates of probability. Always, as uh, odds are always high estimates of probability. You have to look at the other side and scale them to get them down to what we might call consistent estimates mm-hmm. of the probability. Mm-hmm. And that, else, that is a factor. What else about the Australian Open? So we, we, there is all this concern in the world, in the U.S. world anyway, about the women who got knocked out in the first round. And then we had this kind of unknown 21, 22-year-old make it to, what, the quarters or something before yes. she just got knocked out? Yep. Who is that again, Eric? I don't, oh, I, did, I, I thought I you had them, No, I don't remember the name. <laughs> she there just was got a, knocked out by Kerber, by Angelique Kerber. Last, it was the, Kerber, this, but this, it wasn't in the last round because Kerber No, beat, this most recent round, No, no. Ah, Madison Keys no, is no, the but name. Madison, yeah, but uh, thanks, Matt. But Madison Keys is the 17th ranked player in the world. She's not an unknown U.S. player. In fact, she made the finals of the U.S. Open last year and lost uh, to Sloan Stevens. Okay, okay. So Madison Keys. No, I thought you were talking about the qualifier who actually made the round of 16. This woman was ranked like 400 in the world. Her last name is something starts with a J. She's from Croatia. She literally uh-huh. made it. She won three rounds of qualifying to get in to the Australian and then made it to the fourth round. That's some okay. serious momentum. Am I right? Uh, <laughs> it's some serious updating needed about her ranking. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. maybe she's yeah, not four hundred. Yeah. She's in no the longer four hundred. Talk no, about she a big certainly jump. won't be after but that. The other point that I was going to make about the men's side of tennis is, you know, I just looked it up this morning just to remind all of you guys. You ha- since Federer won his first major back in two thousand and four, so let's say there's been fifty two majors roughly since then. Five men have won forty eight out of the fifty two majors. Okay, so obviously Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Murray, and Rarinka. The only four others were won by, you guys won't even remember, it's a 2004 guy by the name of Marat Safin, Russian, won a major. Uh, Gaudio won one in 2004, won the French. This is before uh, Nadal ever even played the French. Del Patro has won the U.S. Open. And a guy who's still left on the men's side, Marin Cilic, Cilic, won the U.S. Open as well. But 48 of 52 have been won by... Five men the big five. in the last twelve, uh, and th- none sorry, of the, thirteen and, or fourteen years. None of them years. are Americans because you look back. And none you, of them you are feel Americans. Like, um, I feel that as we try to talk about the Australian Open, it just the the, the the tennis in America seems to have lost a lot of its interest 
And is it, do you think that's predict? Is that first of all, is that true? And second, is it potentially caused by the lack of good men at the top? Well, it depends what you mean by the top. Because let me just say, a man, a U.S. man, just got defeated yeah. yesterday in the quarters. It's interesting. I'm not saying his name wrong. His name is actually Tennis, not spelled Tennis. It's Y S, but it's guy Tennis Sangren made the quarterfinals. Um, the U.S. has probably four or five men in the top twenty in the world. So John Isner is one. Yep. Uh, Jack Sock is also one. Uh, Sam Query is also one. So the U.S. has. There's no, like, let's not go based days of McEnroe, Connors, you know, even Andy Roddick, Andre Agassi. We don't have players Sampras, that are... I mean, Sampras, wait, we don't have... I should have mentioned Sampras. <laughs> we don't have players that are in top... Well, matter of fact, we don't have any in the top 10, but we have a number of players, three or four, that are in between, like, 10 and 20 in the world. So, I don't know. Yeah, so, I mean, right, it, it, it's clear that it, at the very top end, America has it, is kind of at a low point as far as competitive. Well, they haven't won or right? ma- I mean, none of the people I mentioned to are but, U.S. But, players. But, but the, other, won the, the, last the other part of the US. assertion, is there, is, is there data to back up the other part of the assertion that somehow interest is waning in America towards watching? Like, is viewership down? I don't know. Is all, yeah, I mean, Seems that, to be the observation, but uh, it could be completely it, uh, nonsense. I don't, I don't know. I, I actually don't know. I was just pointing out that I thought it was... Strange that again. Uh, well, I put this empirical fact, but you've helped correct me. These aren't independent trials. The first four may already be given, so maybe they really are flipping just the same number of coins. I just found it remarkable that they were basically equal. That this is the same, fellas. The NBA All Star Game is being run under a very different structure this year, which you know I think this is the intent adds quite a bit of intrigue. The, this game, you know, these you put a bunch of talent on the court, but they don't play defense. And so last year's score was something like almost 200, 190 to 180, 192 to 182. And they decided to finally do something about it. What they decided to do was to pick two captains and let them pick teams, which is old school, schoolyard, fantastically interesting. Is there anyway. ego in it? That's the only way and to by end way, it. Not even within conference. You can pick players right. from the other conference. Well, There's no conferences anymore. Here's the way it works. The, That's that pretty the, cool. The top two vote-getters, I believe, were the captains. and LeBron the, and Steph Curry. And the top vote-getter gets first pick. And the top ten are starters, and they're guaranteed, essentially. And the two captains must pick the starters, starters first. first. Yep. And then they move into the reserves. And exactly. so they're going to they're gonna pick something like you know 10 or 12 guys each total, but they have to go in this order. So, I mean, how fascinating is this, right? How much fun is this? And they, they hope, of course, that it translates into a little more competitiveness on the on the court. Well, I think I'm pretty sure this is true. I think LeBron was the top vote getter, um, and I correct. You know, correct. And so um, I don't think there'll be any surprise who he picks. Um, his initials are K. D. (laughs) I think he's going to pick Kevin Durant. Um, Of course, Steph Curry's already announced. Of course, if his teammate, Kevin Durant, is still left with the second pick, he's going to take Kevin Durant. Um, It's also interesting to, you know, what happens um, if, let's say you're the, uh, you know, let's say you're Steph Curry and your own two other teammates, uh, Thompson, Clay Thompson and Draymond Green are on the board and you don't pick them. So this is why this game is meaningless. He'll pick them, if nothing else, but, you know, do you want just – I don't know that it would cause disharmony, but imagine you signal to your own two guys who are all-stars on your team, I'd rather have Joel Embiid than the two of you. And just to let you know, I'm going to well, show it to the starters. I know yeah, that. Right? I mean, so, though, though you, one could actually argue maybe it's actually strategically – the right. I mean, if, if Steph Curry is used to playing with these players, like if, if the outcome is to actually win this game, maybe he – Maybe it's actually the right move to pick his teammates who he knows play comfortably together 
than to pick, say, like, you know, slightly better yeah. players on paper. Yeah, I was just referring to the team. signal value if yeah. you were not to pick them yeah, no, when that, he no, had I, the I opportunity agree. to I pick agree. them. I agree. I just, I guess I'm proposing that there's actually a rationale beyond just sort of, you know, kind of, you know, keeping his team chemistry positive for actually picking his teammates. I think they're struggling to find anything to bring interest to the All-Star game here. I mean, people like watching the players, the dunks, and everything else. But, you know, in some sense, it, it's a meaningless game. Yeah. I mean, it, of course, it's meaningless, but it's kind of fun. I mean, th- these, People this... have more interest in the dunk contest and the three-point shootout, in my view, so than they have the actual game. Do you think game. this is going to change the level of interest? I think what will happen is, I hope what they do is they bring in more skills competition. They even have now this One passing, dribbling one-on-one games would be, would be really interesting. Yeah. You know, why not make the weekend a whole bunch of, like, in some sense, skills? They already have dunks, three points. They have this guard competition where you dribble through stuff. You, you have to pass into a hoop type of thing. They have that. They have the celebrity game. They have the rookie against the sophomore game. So, it, let me guess that you know all this because this I is watch a Bradlow family oh, event I, on absolutely. the Saturday before. You, <laughs> yeah. cook, you cook hot dogs at noon, and you settle in front of one of your 27 TVs and watch all... Of the skills competition. Well, not only that, but we watched past dunk contests just to get amped up yeah. to, to watch the one that's coming up. That's breakfast. What if the, what, what, yeah. what if the, what if you wanted to if you want to make the All Star game a little bit more consequential? Why don't you uh, assign home field? For uh, the finals, what sport oh would God. do that? Oh, right? Wouldn't that be Wouldn't that be exciting? Wouldn't people get a, be for really happy game? about that? So let's talk about I, this. I, this is one of my least favorite things in public sports. I know, I know, I know. But let's talk about the starters real quick. You, the starters are these are the top ten. They're the top five vote getters from each conference. So it's five east, five west. And I'm going to make a confession, which is you know a, a little embarrassing, but I don't know anything about Demar Derozan. He's he's a Toronto Raptor. Who these guys have been outperforming? You know, they've been performing very well the last couple of years. But I look at this list; they're all kind of. You know, well-known names, big names, flashy names, and I see Demar Derozan. Tell me something about Demar Derozan. I mean, I'm looking at Bradlow. Well, no, I mean, you know, Toronto is one of these underappreciated teams it is, it right is. now. They have the second best point differential right now in the NBA, the best in the East. So they, ha- you know, their Demar Derozan is uh, an extremely talented player, great shooter, great athlete. You know, is great passer of the ball. He's been in the I'm, league eight or nine years. Yeah, and it says he's underneath from, there, he's a full-time, four-time All-Star. So this yeah. isn't the first time the guy's been on the All-Star team. Toronto is also analytics forward and and pretty advanced front office there. Who else on this list of ten? So it's Curry well, James, the Greek freak whose last name I can't pronounce, DeMarcus Cousins, Anthony Davis. That's, that's that. that there's, think, there's one out there that you can play a game of which one of these is not like the other, and that's Joel Embiid. He's a rookie. He's the only one who's first-timer, even close to all the others are, I guess, maybe the well, the Greek, the freak Greek, is Greek twice, freak is twice. Yeah. Well, it depends how you count Embiid, right? He did play thirty-one games last year. Embiid did play thirty-one oh, games does, last year. That doesn't year. count as a well a rookie year. I think it counts. Like I don't think they he's eligible. All team rookie. Well, two thousand sixteen seventeen first time. That I was see, last I season. Says not a second year. But the part oh. that surprises me is you look up and I see Demar Demarcus Cousins and Anthony Davis. First of all, they're on the same team, and both of them are averaging twenty-five and ten. Now, that's absolutely remarkable. I mean, there's only one ball. There's only one ball to rebound. And both of them are having what most people would consider, 
you know, astronomical numbers. Fact, I know it's an arbitrary cutoff, but I'm, I don't know if there have ever been two players in the NBA on it's the same good, team that good, averaged 25 and 10. It's a really good point. These are both big guys as well. How are the, this is the New Orleans Pelicans, right? How are they, how are they playing? They're they're playing pretty well. Twenty five and twenty one, sixth place in the West. Matty Dat says that's 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 pretty good. But you would think that does not speak well for the other players. Yeah, on who, that who else team. do they have on that team? Well, we know who they're starting. Not, not a lot of ball hogs, clearly. Yeah, yeah, their guard play could yeah. use improvement. How about yeah. well, Drew Holiday, former Sixer, is one of their other big players on the team. But yeah, I mean they've invested all their money in their two big men, yeah. and they need they need some guard play. Okay, so dropping down to the reserves, the reserves are picked by the by the coaches, the right. NBA coaches, and there are going to be fourteen of them. So both both captains are going to end up with seven of these guys. Running through these real quick: Lamarcus Aldridge, Jimmy Butler, Draymond Green, Al Horford. He's uh, I think sometimes underappreciated. Kevin Love is in there, really. I don't know enough. Przingis out of the Knicks, fantastic, such a strong organization. Clay Thompson, John Wall, and Westbrook. It's hard to believe Westbrook is not a starter. Yeah, I mean, really, what? The really, heck? I mean, well, th- there can only be two, right? Do they do it by position? They do. Uh, so who could be... you? I mean, are you going to take out James Harden or Steph Curry? Yeah, I mean, the problem is you got three for two, right? Okay, that's right. tough. But he has to be the first reserve off. I mean, yeah, don't you? Well, think? no. I I, th- I told you. I think. Uh, oh, oh yeah, yeah. First, first reserve. Oh, first for reserve. sure. If but, they could trust me, if LeBron James or somebody could take well, him well, after KD, well, Cur- he'd probably be the next player taken. Yeah. Okay, after but Kevin now Durant. now you're challenging your own theory because Curry gets first reserve pick, and he's going to be looking at Draymond Green, for example, and he's going to have to choose between Draymond Green. I and, think and everybody would. I think even and Clay Thompson. I, oh yeah, yeah. I th- my own belief. They're going to forgive him. I think they'd forgive him <laughs> if he were to take Russell Westbrook with the first reserve pick. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so if that's such a substantive difference, who so. do you think? Who do you think LeBron James takes when he gets his first? He's not going to take his buddy Kevin Love. That's for dang sure. Well, not after what's just been happening in Cleveland right now. By the way, the Sixers only have two more losses than Cleveland, which is sitting in the three spot. Just to let you know, there are six teams in the Eastern Conference right now between nineteen and twenty-two losses. The three seed, which is Cleveland, has nineteen losses. The Sixers were the eight seed wow. have 21 losses wow. cleveland has plummeted so far you know we go on a four-game winning streak we could be sitting in the three seed in the east wow eric do you think we have enough data in game in season to see progressions of teams within a season so the sixers are one of these teams that are sufficiently young you might expect them to show real development over the course of the season how much do you need to see before you can say yeah this team's trending up and and uh, you know is 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 that number that you've just that we have to come up with tied to like sort of the youth of the of the team or, or experience of the strong team. hypothesis that yeah. it would be right yeah um, and so we kind of we, and as fans we like to believe they're going to improve over the course are of the, the season. Sixers playing better now than they this, did in the this beginning this is the bottom line question yeah exactly. I thought they started off decently and uh, we're getting some sh- head shakes from the crew <laughs> I think it's an interesting I actually I look at Adi here when I'm asking this because you had talked about discreteness before and so if you were going to bin the NBA season and look for, let's say, increasing patterns, let's say in this case. My gut tells me, I don't have any, I could do some calculations about it, four quarters of the season seems about right. Like, why not just say, well, two halves? Well, the problem then is, yeah, I I have more power to detect if there's an upward trend, but I don't know if it's kind of a trend. To me, four buckets of 20 games seems about right to me, and if I could see a pattern of the team in four buckets of 20, I understand I I have less precision. 
No, I'm saying if I had to discretize it, if uh, I had to discretize it. I wouldn't know how to answer that, not enough basketball knowledge to, to know, but would the more information be in, for example, those those pivot games? The the, the Sixers recently built the Celtics, crushed them pretty handily. Does that have more information than a it's a five great, or six? It's a great general analytics question. Can, should we look at the more meaningful or the better matched games or the teams games against tougher teams? Is it more diagnostic? That's performance right. in those right. settings. Elo, for example, as a score cares only about. I mean, they really will move when when you beat a much better team or lose to a much weaker team. And conversely, in, with our analysis in Massey and Massey Peabody about football, we can't find a difference there. We can't find that it matters more how you perform against better teams. It's, it's matchups or matchups or matchups. In our data, hmm. well, I mean that's a interesting. Ju- that's a football it, thing, you yeah. think? Or well, I, 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 mean, I mean, we push it pretty hard, and Rufus has lots of incentive to get it right. Well, basketball yeah. is a much more skill-dominated game. I mean, this is you have huge swings from teams that win almost every I, game. Well, let me, lose I was gonna, let me build on, that. Let me build on that point, Adi, because mm-hmm. there's another statistic I just noticed from the NBA. If you look just quickly, if you looked at the minimum team each year in the NBA, in other words, the team with the worst record. What do you think the team with the worst record roughly is in the NBA? Like 10 wins, 12 wins, 15 wins, 18 wins? 15 wins. It's actually, that's about right. It's about 14 and a half wins. Yep. If the season ended right now with their win percentage, just projected it out for the whole season, the minimum team is at 23 wins right now. Hmm. Wow. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. In other words, just you know, a 300 win percentage, just so you know in the NBA, 300 times 82 gets you 24.6 wins. So every team, in the, and by the way, Remember a lot of years we said, I wonder if this will be the worst team ever matched the Sixers. Everybody right now, basically halfway through the season, has 10 wins or more. So every there's no there'll never be a discussion this season, but everyone's projected 23 wins or more, which is pretty shocking to me, the amount of compression that that suggests in the NBA. Mm -hmm. I just thought that was an interesting measure of the distribution of the minimum number of wins. And, of course, there's other more robust entropy measures about how much dispersion there are. I just thought that the minimum was interesting. Eric, as a season ticket holder and a big fan, what is your take on the Sixers? They've got to figure out how to win close games. Um, Do you think that's the thing? (laughs) Thanks for that response. I'm going to say why. I'm going to say why, and I'll just say it quickly. It's the same reason the Pelicans are 25 and 21, and I've said this on Morton Moneyball. When your best player is your big man, you're going to have trouble. I saw it for 15 years with the Knicks and Patrick Ewing. You can't win close games because it's hard to get the ball to your center. You want the guy with the ball in their hands to be your best player. That's the problem the Pelicans mm-hmm. have. Their record, by the way, is under 500 in close games. I just looked at it. The Sixers' record is abysmal in games decided by five points or less. And that's the problem. You can't get the ball to Joel Embiid at the moment, your best offensive player, near the end of the game. So it's it's learn in a different sense than I heard when you said it. It's literally structurally figure out how what is a strategy we can use. It's not like mentally. No, 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 no. And by the way, just quickly, that's why the Sixers drafted Markel Fultz, the number one pick in the draft, and traded a three-pick and a first-rounder for him, he supposedly was the guy that's the shooting guard because Ben Simmons is a great player, but he can't score. So that's the reason why the Sixers drafted Markel Fultz. And in 10 seconds, how's Fultz doing? Well, he's not playing. He's He's not saying, but according to Joel Embiid, He's ripping it in practice, and he's ready to play. <laughs> oh, no, you can believe that. Well, the Sixers always have to wait a year before they get their players. There we go. Them. All right, that has been another Wharton Money about Two hours of sports analytics. We do this live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10. Appreciate you joining us. Come back and join us next time. From the whole crew here, thanks to Matty Datsun and Daniel Bruno, our sound engineer, for keeping us on track. This has been Eric, Adi, Shane, and Cade. Come back and join us in a week. Between now and then, 
Enjoy your sports. <laughs>